Hello and welcome back to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. Today's episode, we kick off our series of interviews with artists from our upcoming winter auction. Between the 5th and the 19th of November, you will be able to place a bid on postcard-sized original artwork. This time, as we did in the summer, we're not going to keep the artist's secret until after the auction, um, because we just felt that with everything going on at the moment, we thought to give the artist their full representation, um, and this method works best. So today I will be speaking to Winston Branch, who you can find under lots 174 to 177. Um, and I urge you to take a look at Winston's pieces on our website at www.artonapostcard.com. Winston Branch, born in 1947, is a British artist originally from St Lucia. He still has a home there while maintaining a studio in California. Works by Branch are included in the collections of Tate Britain, the Legion of Honor de Young Museum in San Francisco, and the St Louis Museum of Art in Missouri. Branch was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1978, a sponsorship to Belize from the Organization of American States, and was artist-in-residence at Fisk University in Tennessee. He's been a professor of fine arts and has taught at several art institutions in London and in the US. He's also worked as a theatrical set designer with various theatre groups. Currently, Winston has a painting on display at the Westminster and Chelsea Hospital in a Chelsea Arts Club member show. As you'll hear in the podcast, Winston is full of um, life and um, positivity, as well as being a wealth of knowledge and experience so it's truly was an honor to interview such a prolific artist as Winston and an important figure of contemporary art so enjoy the episode Winston Branch, it's great to finally get the chance to chat with you and um, we're so excited that you're doing art on a postcard um, and uh, how how have you been? How have you been during this strange time? Well, you know, I don't try to think about it because, you know, uh, I do what I can within the capacity I am able to. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you are so prolific looking through your work, you, you seem to really never stop making work. <laughs> well, but, that's the, what I try to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's my life. That's the commitment that I made. Yeah. So, what do you think? Where does that drive come from to to paint constantly? Well, I suppose it is. Uh, where does life come? Life comes from just being, and when you focus on being, uh, you don't get sidetracked. Yeah. You have a focus and you take the rough with the smooth and the smooth with the rough. You fall, you get up, you, 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 know, you just keep on keeping on. Yeah, absolutely. So do you take a daily practice? Are you painting every day and how, for how long? Well, do I don't paint every day like I used to, but I try to keep my hand in it because they're so many other commitments uh, that have to be uh, paid attention to. So I 
um, but I have, and I'm doing, so I never uh, feel remorse because right. I live making art. That is my being. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so you've been painting for, for since the 60s. <laughs> before, that. <laughs> before that. I graduated in 1970, but before I graduated, I'd always wanted to paint. And uh, for me, painting is just uh, finding the inner sen sense the yeah. center, the inner center of one's being. Mm. And um, you breathe and you paint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you've been painting since before the 1960s. What, do you remember that first experience when you picked up a paintbrush and some <laughs> paints for the first time? Well, you know, I was a reticent child. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you are a reticent child, people think you're either a sissy or you're silly. Uh, I was neither. Mm. I just had an inner strength, which was to make and to pursue a vision. And the, the, the thing about being a person is not that shouting and screaming and beating a tumble is just walking quietly and observing. Right. Yeah. So you were quite a you were you were quite an uh, observant child. So you would have been sort of picking up little things here and there and then expressing them through your art? Well I think art is rather philosophical. I think uh I was doodling, uh, and uh, people thought, well, he's a bit funny. Uh, so, but I never was funny. I didn't feel odd. I never felt odd. I, uh, but, you know, people react to you because they project their neurosis onto you. Mm. And you have to deal with it. If you embrace their craziness, you are lost in the wilderness. Mm. So you have to stand back and to use a, a overused metaphor, mm. it's water on a duck's back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was it like, uh, the sort of art that was coming out of uh, you're from St. Lucia. What was the art like in St. Lucia when you were a child? What well, kind of I was born in St. Lucia, but the, the, the reality of being a visionary was to embrace a universality. And I guess the most uh, potent recollection was seeing statues, being a Catholic, going to the ritual of mass. Mm. And then the mass was said in Latin and I was an acolyte. And I learned Latin without even knowing what it was. There was this mystery of discovering a void of a newness. Uh, 
And as I got older, I unraveled uh, the mystery, which I'm still unraveling today, mm. uh, whereby you have you learn faith is the key to believing in what is not yet possible, but can be possible. Mm. So when I take a piece of paper or canvas, and I start off with the primary colors, which are just three, and I make a palette of a universe, which is my own personal vocabulary. Mm. This gives me the sensation and the fulfillment of discovery. So I want to constantly explore. It's like a child, an mm. innocence of a child. We, we lose our innocence because we get contaminated as we uh, are exposed to a lot of things around us. Mm. And the beauty of of the world is to see it with fresh eyes, to see it in a way that uh, we first saw it. But we can never see it like the first time mm. because the imprint on our consciousness uh, can never be removed. Mm. The first time is never like the next time yeah because yeah. The f that's why it's called the first time <laughs> yeah i know and i guess you know things are always changing and you mentioned that you graduated from the slade in in the 19 in 1970 um yeah how have you perceived that things have changed since then in the art world what's making art how does making art compare now to to back then well, I think, you know, it's always the same. I mean, you have Carreras, you have the hype, you have all the hullabaloo, but you mustn't get lost in that mm. because you make it for yourself and it's a very solitary act. But then you have to also go out into the world and sell your wares, which becomes like a preacher without a parish because mm -hmm. you are disseminating what you are making. But no one really wants it, no one really cares for it, and no one asks you for it. But you believe very strongly in it. So you want people to see it. And the only way for them to see it is for you to put it out there mm. in the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah, it's a competitive marketplace. Um, I read that in an interview, you said that um, I was never part of the art world. I was on my own trying to build an empire of Winston Branch. Why, why the compulsion to do it alone um, outside? Well, of you have to do it alone because it is a, a solitary act. You go into the studio and you make art and, you know, 
whether you are successful or not, it's a subjective judgment. And you have to keep on until someone says, hey, that's interesting, let's give it a punt, you know? But yeah. that, they won't go on forever, they won't be your savior. You have to save yourself. So the art world is ephemeral. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I mean, I never read my newspaper clippings. Uh, it wasn't until I was in Berlin in 1976 when, oddly enough, a, a journalist called Lobo, who used to write for the morning Morgan the morning paper. Mm. Uh, Morgan, it was called Morgan Post. And it was a very interesting situation because uh, the year before, I had, before going to Berlin, I had showed in New York. I had my first one man show in 1975 in Manhattan, New York City, where it was a dream come true. But yeah. he had read about me in um, the New Yorker because the gallery, unbeknownst to me, had taken some ads uh, uh, in the New Yorker, the New York Times, the Sunday Times. Yeah. Uh, but I never knew about it because I was more concerned about uh, the sales. Mm. And um, the, bless her soul, uh, she wanted to um, keep my feet firmly on the ground. She didn't want me to go up like a rock, <laughs> lost in space. So I never worried about it. And of course, my life, uh, I was fortunate to be invited to Berlin on the DARD program. And he had been the uh, German correspondent for what we call Reuters, uh, Bernard Labosky. And uh, he had read about me, and I had no idea. Mm. And so later when we became friends, he said, uh, and he used to write a lot about me. I thank him for that. And he used to say, why don't you keep your cuttings? And I said, well, why? What's the point of that? There are libraries and archives and, you know, I'm not interested. I know who I am. And um, I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid, you know. Um, because either you've done too much or you haven't done enough or you the wrong gender and it's always something, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So you have to say it doesn't really matter. What matters is I must keep, keep on doing what I want to do. Yeah. And yeah. people will come and people will go and people will enrich your life. People will impede your progress, but life goes on. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's so great to hear, you know, you've done so much traveling in your career. You know, you've traveled an extraordinary amount um, and you have 
work in galleries worldwide you also have well, not enough i need some more <laughs> need some more but what do you think that traveling the amount of travel that you do what do you think that travel does for your painting how does exploring the world influence the work that you make well there are two things i learned a very long time ago no one really wants to hear your tailor world and therefore if you have everyone has a story and everyone can be uplifted or brought down, depending on who you're telling it. And I learned that if you have a smiling face, more people will invite you to be part of their circle. If you're gloom and down and depressed, you'll be left by yourself. So it's just common sense to be sensible about it. If I stayed at home all the time, mm. I would never get to talk to you. If I get out and about, people say, oh, I met this man. Oh, he sounds interesting. Why don't you try to do something? That's how information is disseminated. Mm. It doesn't come from, from up above. It comes from normal people just saying, why don't you have a look around? See what you think about that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely, I so, do. So therefore, my travel, besides that I am a restless soul, and I think that uh, I'm inquisitive, and I'm fascinated by what is going on. Mm that you have to have an open mind. If you are myopic and stay one place, you see that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you see, say if you're in you know, your studio in California, when you're there, do you notice that something in the environment starts coming out into the paintings? Well, I think that it's warmer, it's lighter, uh, you know. But you know, I work everywhere and it's all in your head anyway. You know, I, I mean, it was very interesting because in 1982, I came back. I was living between uh, New York and West Berlin because I was greedy. I had a, a DRD, which they were very good to me. It was the first time I had a 2,500 square feet of space, and I painted 12 feet paintings and all kinds. And then, at the, with the help of my friend, Bernard Lebowski, who wrote a lot about me, mm. I got the Guggenheim Fellowship, which meant that I was supposed to work in New York. And I didn't want to give up Berlin, and I, and I loved New York, but I found that I, had, I was really a European. This is the other thing about it. And, uh, I love Europe, and uh, although I love America because the United States has an incredible ability to uh, absorb and to embrace the absurdity of life. Mm. Uh, but it's the kind of thing about, let's see what you can do. I remember in New York, 
I built my first loft on Broadway and Bleaker, but I was in my 30s. And everybody's excited and everybody wants to throw paint on the great boardwalk on the, you know, everybody, that's the dream of every artist. Mm. I was showing New York to see themselves up. But you know, it's interesting because when you attain these things, you you don't hold on to them, you move on to the next one. Yeah. So the appetite is always growing. So there's never anything like enough. Once you've been bitten, and like travel, when I left the state, I, I had a boys scholarship and I went to um, Holland and I went to Hamburg and I traveled. And then uh, I, before I even graduated from the state, I chilled in Algeria. I love to travel, I love to discover. Yeah. And you know, everything comes and, and then I, my first really time in the United States was when I went to the South. I had been invited to teach at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. Mm. And uh, it was very weird because I never taught in a black university. Mm. And the, they tried to put parameters on me. And I thought, no, I can't deal with that. I won't deal with that. What I will kind not of... be confined. Yes. Uh, what kind I... of parameters would they be? What? What were the kind of parameters they were trying to well, enforce? Because I had been brought up in a multicultural world. Mm. I went to school, I was my first uh, teachers were nuns, mm. uh, French and Irish nuns from Quebec. Uh, and uh, I think they only had one black nun called Sister Catherine. Uh, but all the nuns were as pale as, <laughs> as pale as pink. And so, uh, and all the priests were, you know, so I met, and there were French uh, people who were lighter than myself. So I never really thought about this confinement. And suddenly, in Nashville, I, I was talking about, <laughs> it's so funny, I was talking about uh, painting, and I was talking about Helen Franklin Pollock. And because yeah. one person was uh, semi-abstract and I, it just resonated of uh, Frankenthal. Mm. And they said to me, we don't want to hear about that. We want to have our black artists. And I, for a moment, it was so profound that they wanted to know about black artists. And these were 19 and 17 year old. Yeah. And I uh, I said, well, you know, artists are. 
And they said, do you know any black artists? Because they thought they were going to roast me. We had been too in a white world. And I said, yes, I do. I know. Aaron Douglas, who teaches at the school there, was part of the Renaissance. I shared a gallery uh, with Jake Lawrence, uh, who did a series of paintings of uh, immigrants. Migration. And I said, I know my dear friend, Buford Deloney in Paris, who was a friend of uh, O'Keefe. Mm. Uh, and uh, I know lots of artists because I read about them. I'm interested in all artists. Mm. I'm not, uh, not of their pigmentation, but of what they contribute to the asceticism of the vocabulary of world art. Mm. And then it's really, um, even today I still think about it because it was wow, you know. And then I had to think very hardly about it because I'd grown up on Monet, Rembrandt, Titian, European art, but there was what was really happening at that moment in time, which I was not aware of, because there are two Americas. There's white America and there's black America. Yeah. And so black America has always felt outside of the place, outside of the room. Mm. And I guess we in Europe of people of color are outside the room, but we don't even know we are outside the room. That was so profound. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And did it then, did that moment then affect what, how you felt going forwards? And the... Well, it, it, it was, it just made me, uh, think about it. And as I told you, it happened in 1973. Uh, but it made me pause, which is a euphemism now. <laughs> I had to pause and think about it. And, but then I never let it uh, define me. Mm. Uh, because it's one more obstacle to overcome. And if you make excuses for people, you're lost your way. You don't know what I think of you, and I don't know what you think of me. Mm. But we, we, we find an equilibrium whereby we have to be polite, to be uh, respectful of each other. Mm. Going back to that theme of um, just sort of how things kind of changed through time, it was interesting to see some of your earlier work, um, your paintings that were a lot more figurative, um, sort of before 1977. Um, and then what you made afterwards, you know, moving into non-representational kind of abstract art. 
Um, yeah, I'm just wondering what kind of, why, what made you move, kind of shift? Well, two things, uh, two things, because uh, when you begin to draw and paint, you make graven images uh, that look like something. That's yes. normal. Uh, we learn from symbolism. But as you develop your own vocabulary, you try to free yourself from the confines which other people put upon you. Every child rebels against their parent, but they become their parent later in life because what their parents have instilled in them resonates in them as they get older. But they want to exert their voice. And that's normal. We always, not that we think we know best as you, but we are reaching out beyond the confines of the limitations that our parents' life were set because everyone has uh, a paradigm and you cannot go on exhausting yourself fighting forever you you as we say you take a seat you you, you know the most annoying is a rebel who never stops uh making aspersions about the ideal socialist world. It's not, it's never gonna happen. Because we are not equal. That's the first thing we have to accept. We may be equal in the sight of God, which is another misnomer anyway, because no one has seen God. And, um, but that comes to faith. We have to believe in something. And the core of something is ourself. And that is the hardest thing to shelter, to nurture, to um, defend. So when a child rebels against their parent, the parent is only trying to protect this child. But this child says, no, I want to fall and stumble and get up. I want to have the experience. You cannot negate this experience of mine. And then and the parents say, oh God, what's the matter with you? Can you not see I'm trying to guide you? And the child will say, as so many have said, I, if I need you, I will come to you, but let me fly away and let me find my way. And it's true because you see, we always end up where we begin. It's a circle. We, some of us just take a long time and some of us get bruised. 
but the bruising is part of life, you know? Uh, I've had my ups and I had my downs. And, yeah. you know, choices I have made were not always favorable, but they were my decisions and I have to stand by them. Uh, you cannot yeah. please everyone, but sometimes you could try and please more people than yourself. But that's life, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So in this kind of more abstract, non-representational way of painting, do you, am I right in saying that you've, you've found a more of a freedom of expression? Well, two things happen. Uh, and I seem to have gone awry with the first question. Uh, it takes a moment for you to really discover yourself. I know young people always say, oh, I'm finding myself, I'm finding myself. We all said that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and um, there's, you know, uh, what made me change my way of looking at the world was two things. Uh, I love theater, I love people. And uh, I painted images that looked more naturalistic to the world that we were used to. And that's fine up to a point. But then people started putting external pressures they kept reading into it more than it was and say, ah, he's political, he's this, he's that. Ah. I was merely exuberant. I took on challenges. I love the dramatics in art. I love the um, discovery of art. And the people that really interested me at, in the 60s because we had protests, just like we have it now. Uh, and young people um, out there jumping up and down, the, the weather is warm, there's so much crisis going on, the world looks like it's going to explode, and it will never explode. It will just go through a metaphorical experience of exuberance of youth, asserting their identity. We have all kinds of crises. When I was growing up, we had um, the threat of the nuclear deterrent, all the Marston March. We had the um, uh, the hippies, we had the Bohemians, we had all kinds of uh, we had dropouts, we had all kinds of people, but they all became normal. Uh, the strong ones did, unfortunately. Some got lost as space cadets, which is sad, but in the casualties of war, you always have that. That's one of the things. We had the Vietnam yeah. War, we had endless protests. Um, protest was a way of fighting and intermingling and meeting beautiful girls. Because women always do protests. And, <laughs> and, and so they are more outwardly um, exuberant. Uh, they dance, they 
eat their tambourine, they shake their feet, and <laughs> men follow uh, because that's the way we are programmed. And so, so I was in New York and I've been to see Clifford Stokes at the Metropolitan Museum. And I had seen his painting at the Tate. And Clifford Stokes blew my mind because he filled up about eight rooms of paintings at the Metropolitan Museum. And they were big paintings. They were, you know, they were 12 foot by 10 foot. Yeah. I mean, they were enormous. And one had only seen very few big paintings. Uh, because people paint for domesticity. They make small paintings. And, uh, and suddenly there was all this, my God, this was tremendous. And then came the moment when I went to Berlin. And so I thought, oh God, I'm down on this. Because, you know, I've always wanted to paint bigger. Now I have 255,500 square feet of space. Mm. I'm going to paint pot boilers. Let it all hang out. And uh, so that's how it happened. And then I gradually moved away from the figuration to the abstraction because I, for the first time, I could do what I wanted without any uh, paradigm of being imposed upon me, which is what one has always been asserting to find a space in the universe. It sounds very philosophical, highbrow, but it's not meant to be. It is, you know, you want to be yourself, and everybody is trying to make you what they think you should be. And if yeah. you become what everybody wants you to be, you'll become nothing. <laughs> everybody else will tell you you're not right. Mm, yeah. So first, you have to be right for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, you are, you know, hearing you speak, you are such a sort of philosophical person. And then hearing your, the type, you know, the titles of your work often seem to be quite poetic and sort of philosophical. So, you know, ones that stood out to me, we were one under the moon. Um, she lay in the, the green grass. <laughs> Let the sun yeah, in the grass. In the green yeah, grass. because, you know, uh, it's all about imagination. And I love women. I adore women. I think women are the which is true, they are the source of life. They shape our world. And men make restrictions and always trying to confine women. And they Women are the greatest of all because they give life. They, men cannot give life. They can inseminate part of the place, 
but no one can, no man carries a, a, a child for nine months in his belly. Yeah. And no man knows what that's like because you can't walk in my shoes, even though you think you can, but you can't. So when you know that about women, you respect them because they're the source which all life comes from. Mm. I mean, we kill them, we beat them, we lock them up, we enslave them. But that's the frustration of the pressure that men have about women. Uh, yeah. But women are the most beautiful thing in the world. Mm. Would you call yourself a feminist? Well, I don't know these titles because I respect people as I respect myself. I won't take shit from no one and therefore I won't give anyone shit. So I respect people. And I think that uh, you should respect, if you disrespect women, you disrespect your mother, you disrespect your sister, you disrespect your being of the source of yourself, your self-hater. You can't disrespect me. You might disagree with me. But I think uh, feminism has got rather tarnished because I always say to people, speak your mind, but you don't have to shout. You can be very assertive and be soft-spoken. It's been such a great opportunity to kind of hear some of your thoughts on the artistic practice and the world that surrounds art and um, the world in general. So I thank you so much for giving some time over to me today to discuss what we have done this stuff. I hope it was helpful. It's I mean, very helpful. Uh, the, the, the thing is, not, uh, I'm very on the ground floor. I, I don't have any illusions of grandeur. I do what I do and I'm thankful for the rewards that I have been given because they didn't have to be given, you know. Uh, I'm, but that's one of the reasons for traveling to moving, you know, you've got to be hustling and busting. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you just stand still, you won't go anywhere. Yeah, definitely. You know, you know, you uh, discovery is by voyaging. You, I mean, we are scientists, uh, and so when we either travel in our heads or we travel in our physical being. Yeah. And so you, do, you take, you, the thing is, you create opportunities for you to explore. No one will give you opportunity. It, it is a very misnomer uh, that people always say, oh, no one does this for me, no one. No one does anything for anyone. <laughs> in a selfish world. What you have to do is to see an opportunity and go for it. Absolutely. That's all there is, you know. Yeah. And my journey was just about shut your mouth and <laughs> your eyes wide open. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. so I, I, 
much fortunate. I took what I could, and that's it, you know? And therefore, I wouldn't let anyone tell me I couldn't do something. Mm. Mm. Which is very comforting, because when uh, you live in a, in a clustered world, people say, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> and he say, well, you know, I want to do it because I, I want to do it. I want to, <laughs> I want to find out. I want to find out. I yeah. mean, uh, and everybody, Marco, Jimmy, um, Marconi, Facebook, everybody was the same story. Francis Drake, Columbus, everybody. You know, why do you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's what makes them stand out. You, you're driven. And there are days that are bad, and there are days that you can't get up, and there are days that you ask yourself, when will it end? But it will end. It will end when you die. And you, have, you are on that journey anyway. You can't stop it. So do the best. Live the life. Be optimistic. And always go forward. There's nothing worth going back for. Go yeah. forward, the brave young man and women. <laughs> That's so inspirational. Thank you so much, Winston. Well, God bless you. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you and to share this time with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care of yourself um, and those that are around you as well. Look after each other. And um, yeah, I'm very grateful. We must share the love. Peace and love. Yes, to share you as well. <laughs> to you as well, Winston. Share the love. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye!